Buenas tardes. Yo soy Andrew Seeley, el presidente del Instituto. Good afternoon. My name is Andrew Seeley, president of the Migration Policy Institute, or MPI. And it's a pleasure to welcome you to this conversation about Costa Rica and its immigration and asylum system. This conversation today has two purposes. First is to look more deeply at Costa Rica's immigration and asylum system. Costa Rica, like many countries in Latin America and the Americas, including the US and Canada, but also countries in Latin America and the Caribbean are seeing an increase in the number of people who are arriving as immigrants or people re requesting refugee status. And as such, it's been a stress on the system that deals with these people. Costa Rica in particular has a large percentage of the population that's born abroad. The numbers are similar to the United States. And Costa Rica as a country has been very generous in taking in people who are fleeing very difficult situations in Nicaragua, Venezuela, Cuba, among other countries. So on the one hand, we'll be looking at the challenges that Costa Rica faces uh, and also that its institutions face right now. But we also think that Costa Rica plays a very important role in the inter-American system in the Americas as far as immigration and uh, asylum in terms of its institutional experience. So that's our second purpose. We want to look at Costa Rica as a part of the region and the role that it can play in showing or teaching others from their institutional experience and also helping to create solutions to my large migratory flows in the in Latin America region. And I think that my colleagues and I really believe that Costa Rica is an anchor and a key player in any conversation about regional migration in the Americas. And so it's a great pleasure to welcome Minister Silvia Lara and Vice Minister Priscila Suniga. I know them both and thank you very much for participating today. And likewise, my great friend, Dr. Manuel Orozco. It's a pleasure to have you here with us again. Sinia Chavez is here as well from the Coffee Institute. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Cindy Regidor, great journalist from Nicaragua, who I also know well. It's a pleasure to have you with us. And of course, my colleagues, Maria Jesus Mora and Diego Chavez, who are the authors of the report that was released today. And thank you very much for all of your efforts. Maria Jesus Morales is our Costa Rican colleague. And so she's our inspiration to continue working on these issues, apart from the great importance that these issues have for all of the Americas. And so I will hand the floor to Diego Chavez, who is coordinating all of our work in Latin America in terms of MPI. Over to you, Diego. Okay, thank you very much, Andrew, for those words. Welcome, everybody. I am Diego Chavez, Senior Manager for MPI's Latin America Caribbean Program. It's a pleasure to have you here with us in this webinar, Changing Migration to Costa Rica and Implications for Immigrant Integration Policy. Thank you very much to Andrew also for his words of welcome. He is currently in Mexico, and so he couldn't join us in real time. But he did want to be sure to give everybody a very warm welcome, including participants who are with us here today. And so 
some housekeeping details. Interpretation is available if in English and Spanish. You'll see that in your meeting settings. You just need to click on the interpretation icon at the bottom of your screen, and you will then be able to access the menu so that anybody who wishes to can access interpretation into English. Another technical note, if you have any technical issue, please send an email to events at migrationpolicy.org or call 202-266-1929. We will have a question and answer session at the end of the event. We're not going to call it Q&A as such, but we are going to have a session for questions. And so answer, you can write any question in the question and answer box or write events at migrationpolicy.org. And we will gladly answer those or some of those questions here with our expert panelists today. The report on the state of Costa Rican migration and immigration integration policy that we'll be discussing today is also available on MPI's website. It's available in English and Spanish. That's the link that you can see on screen now. And before welcoming Maria Jesus Mora, I would just like to say that the idea behind MPI's putting this panel on is looking at the fact that we were calculating, actually with Maria Jesus about a week ago, about there are about 15 million people in Latin America who are in transit or seeking refugee status or in immigration status. And we asked ourselves what country we could learn from or um, look at in greater depth. And Costa Rica is certainly a country that has proposed um, interesting policies in terms of immigration. Maria Jesus will talk about how they are going through a third migratory cycle, but we'll be looking at how they create public policy, how they've defined this Costa Rican model, debating and having a deliberate uh, dis uh, discussion over many years, over 40 years, that Costa Rica has been dealing with this issue. And so, as Andrew mentioned, it's important to get to understand from others and understand from people's experiences. And who better than Costa Rica, who is doing very innovative things in public policy. And so we will talk to, we'll be able to discuss this more with what Maria Jesus will share and with our panelists, and then truly share these with a broad audience. It's extremely important to do so. And we would like to uh, complement this discussion with the report that Maria Jesus and I have written. And so I will give the floor to my colleague, Maria Jesus, who will share our primary findings and some of the recommendations that we were able to make based on what we saw in Costa Rica. This is something that we would like to include in a broader regional conversation. And then uh, the second part of this will be a space for our select expert panel would be able to also uh, contribute to this dialogue a little bit. And so Maria Jesus, it's been a real pleasure working on this report with you as Andrew mentioned you are Costa Rican. And so we had some very good discussions. And so go ahead. The floor is yours. 
Well, as Diego and Andrew mentioned, uh, Costa Rica has long been a destination country for immigrants and refugees. We've identified three cycles since 1980s. The first cycle, which began in the middle of the 1980s, came at a time that uh, problems in El Salvador and Nicaragua became more acute. And as such, there were many applicants for refugee status, which uh, challenged Costa Rica's in institutional model. The next cycle began primarily with economic migrants at the beginning of the 90s, and this remained steady until 2015. So why are we highlighting 2015? This was the end of a cycle, and we have seen a, a different sort of profile for, among immigrants from Venezuelans to Cubans. And there was a time when there was an increase in Nicaraguan uh, refugees as of 2018. And so we see that there are permanent, semi-permanent, and circular migrants, as well as people who are extracontinental who are transiting through Costa Rica. As you can see at this moment, the total population of Costa Rica is about 5 million people. Normal migrants are about 560,000 in number. From 2018 through August of 2021, there have been about 107,000 people who have applied for refugee status. And given the records for people who have sought transit through the country, about two hundred and about 24,000 people um, have gone through Costa Rica on the way to US from Panama. Costa Rica has official border posts, but there is a constant flow of circular and semi-permanent immigrants and people who enter through regular means and stay illegally. And so it's estimated that about a hundred to 200,000 Nicaraguans are settled in Costa Rica in an irregular status, but it's unclear how many people are coming in in a circular migratory fashion and how many people are planning to remain in Costa Rica uh, in an undocumented status. And so this can bring a lot of human capital to the country, but this also implies certain challenges for the country. This third cycle, there's been major pressure in the international system with the increase in applications for refugee status from 2015 through 2019. The total number of applications uh, per year increased more than 18 fold, as you can see, uh, from uh, 202 to a higher figure uh, before an increase or a decrease at the beginning of the pandemic. The increase in refugee applications came about when the Nicaraguan sociopolitical crisis began in 2018. And only from 2017 to 2018, the international protection system saw uh, over a 300% increase as there was a decline during the pandemic, those numbers have increased again, and our numbers from January through August have already surpassed the total applications received in 2020. 
it bears mentioning that from 2014 to 2017, the proportion of refugee applications that were submitted by Nicaraguans never uh, surpassed 2%. It was really Colombians and Venezuelans and Salvadorans who were primarily uh, presenting those applications. But nonetheless, in 2018 and 2019, more than 80% of the applications were put forward by Nicaraguans. And then from January to August of 2021, it was more than 80% of the applications, the highest figure yet were from members of this national group. It's visualizing and understanding Costa Rica's case is important in this historic moment in, the, in all of Latin America. Although Latin America has historically been an immigrant region and Costa Rica has been a host country because of their economic and political stability. From forced migration during civil wars in the 80s especially among Nicaraguans and Salvadorans, or economic migration afterwards, Costa Rica has been constantly learning in terms of its own policies. Costa Rica is a country that has uh, thought through its immigration policy from a statist and not a government perspective um, in terms of the human rights of their foreign population, and they've received international recognition for this. Our study, which sums, is summed up in the following slides, explains how Costa Rica has been able to navigate the particular factors of this last cycle to create an analysis of these policies by sector that allows us to identify best practices and areas where our practices are falling short, where there are perhaps bottlenecks or opportunities for improvement. That includes accessibility, disclosure, coordination and these are points that are interdependent and we would like to um, look at these in terms of regularization health um, and work among other sectors from 2009 through the beginning of 2000 this is referred to as the second migratory cycle and this changed our institutional framework uh, and began a public debate as to what the regulatory framework should be um, that should uh, contain these policies in the country. And within that context, the current uh, law was created in 2009 that deals with immigration and foreign uh, immigrants. That created an integration board and a administrative court for immigration matters, uh, which also includes a, appeals, which was uh, a landmark creation in Latin America. Other points that we would like to highlight are uh, the complementary protection that was in 2020, which allows protection for Nicaraguans, uh, Cubans, and Venezuelans who were denied refugee status. In 2021, there was also binational status uh, guaranteed to indigenous groups in Panama that share a border with Costa Rica that are able to enter Costa Rica in a circular fashion to participate in the farming sector. So Costa Rica can help countries with high migratory flows in terms of their regulatory or institutional framework that may have to reevaluate some of their legal or institutional framework given demographic changes in their immigrant population. But Costa Rica is a lesson learned for the region that when migratory flows change, uh, 
other solutions have to be found outside of the refugee system. That includes interinstitutional cooperation and cooperation among sectors. And so our recommendations for Latin America, we recommend constant training for government officials, developing regularization processes in safe spaces where immigrants can see state institutions as an ally. And they should join with civil society organizations that immigrant populations would feel safe in interacting with. In practice, legal pathways are not as accessible for populations that are currently reaching Costa Rica. And as such, our humanitarian system has not only become overwhelmed, but the number of undocumented immigrants in the country has increased, which has caused a disruptive cycle where people who have lived in an undocumented status for years return or who have been uh, had some sort of status become undocumented very suddenly. And then when we look at the number of migrants who were denied refugee status in their first application and who then did not appeal to the immigration court, uh, along with appeals that were denied by that same court, we have an idea of the size of the foreign-born population that became undocumented again after going through the refugee system. Generally, this has been a low figure, and this has improved over the last few years, but it remains low. Uh, and there have been few appeals approved by the uh, court. There are thousands of people who become undocumented after going through the official immigration court. And so the refugee system needs to not only be expanded in terms of its capacity, but we need to create other pathways for regularization, which also shows us that international cooperation could strengthen immigration and work institutions besides refugee agencies. In terms of health and work, we would like to highlight some best practices among them. The agreement between the government and UNHCR, uh, which allows Nicaraguan refugee applicants who have arrived since 2018 to access the country's uh, safety net systems. Um, some immigrants have been able to uh, get coverage through this agreement, and that's important because in Costa Rica, formal work affects people's access to healthcare. And as such, this allegiance uh, strategic alliance was created. Uh, part of the difficulty in accessing the formal work sector has to do with the absence of, of formal mechanisms for uh, validating people's degrees. People who came in this cycle tend to have uh, higher education uh, at higher rates than the local Costa Rican population, but they're not able to get their credentials recognized. And so they're not able to work in the sectors in which they have experience and they're thus pushed into the informal economy. Another point that we wanted to highlight is um, an agreement between Costa Rica and Nicaragua, which uh, allowed flows to continue while borders were closed and focused on migration or 
um, assistance for agricultural migrants that were already in Costa Rica. There were unprecedented alliances created among different ministries and especially the private sector. These alliances were created and came from conditions in the pandemic and have been um, successful. Minister Lara can, and Senia can share more with us about this in terms of scalability and replicability. And so greater work formalization uh, can increase, increase people's contributions to the social security system and people would be able to further uh, contribute to our social safety net system. And these policies speak to the possibilities that exist in terms of supply and demand in the labor sector or the labor market. And in the particular points of this migratory cycle, this highlight the importance of creating means of recognizing foreign degrees. And we would like to expand alliances with the private sector and with regional governments. And such we've been working with ministries in Nicaragua and Panama. And during the pandemic, we've understood that migration is something that we should um, take care of. and that uh, Costa Rica especially depends on for labor within the region. Lastly, with regard to education, we would like to highlight the intercultural educational aspects that allow for schools in their curriculum to highlight the positive aspects of other cultures. Nonetheless, while there has been some progress in that regard, there continues to be issues with regard to social cohesion in Costa Rica. And there are binational communities in both urban areas and border areas that could certainly benefit from intercultural education. As I noted previously in this latest cycle of immigration, we've seen the arrival of a number of people who have college degrees, but also others who were university students, particularly in Nicaragua. These are individuals who participated in the student protest in their country. And they've arrived in Costa Rica with the intention to follow their college studies and graduate studies. But nonetheless, the current legal framework is focused primarily on elementary school education. That is why we are recommending the creation of alliances of, with academia to design a curriculum that teaches about the history of migration integration in the country, reducing these different aspects in terms of the different requirements for this target audience. And on that note, I will turn the floor over to Diego. Thank you very much for those remarks, for that very succinct presentation of this report. Again, this is now posted on the website of MPI. It has been published in English and Spanish. So very well, let us go ahead and get started with our panel discussion. And let me start out by asking Minister Silvia Lara, the Minister of Labor and Social Security, and of course a specialist in social poverty, poverty reduction, and also the area of gender. 
Minister, the pandemic has shed light on the interdependence between the Costa Rican labor market and migrant workers, as Maria Jose has just noted. What lessons learned about the labor integration of the migrant population would be possible to extend beyond the pandemic? That's one part of the question. And then a second part to this is something that Maria Jesus mentioned at the end, and that has to do with the profile of migrants, which has changed in recent years. What we are calling this third migration cycle and so then the question is how Costa Rica can take advantage of this new human capital given the changes in immigration. Because again, we're seeing a different profile. These are higher profile in terms of their educational status. Again, so how has Costa Rica taken advantage of this human capital? How will it continue to do so? And what lessons could we learn, Minister, from what Costa Rica has done in this regard to put this more on the regional level? So again, take advantage of your experience and expertise. Thank you very much, Diego. Warm regards to you and to Maria Jose and to Andrew Seal from Costa Rica. Of course, we have a longstanding working relationship with him and with you, and we're very pleased to be here and to have an opportunity to learn more about this study. We will certainly read it with tremendous interest and in detail. And of course, all of your suggestions and recommendations for policy based on these findings will be something that we look forward to delving into considerably. I'd also like to thank Priscila Zuniga, who is the Vice Minister of Government and Policy of Costa Rica, as well as foreign affairs and migration. I'd like to, again, thank you all for this. And let me turn to the questions that Diego has just posed, these sort of lessons learned for Costa Rica, what the experience in the pandemic has been, and how we can continue to work in the area specifically of the coffee, of, co of coffee, coffee harvesting specifically, and I'd like to talk about that a little bit as well. Let me also greet Cindy Regidor, a journalist, and Manuel Orozco from the Inter-American Dialogue for joining us here. As Maria Jesus has just said in her presentation, we can see that there has been a real change in the way that people are coming into, migrants are coming into Costa Rica, moving away from being a country that is more one of transit to one that is more of a destination. People come to stay. Of course, we do have temporary labor-based migration in different seasons. And part of the temporary migration also is seeing that they have had difficulty regularizing or attaining status. 
And then when that happens, they're then applying for asylum and refugee status. So we're seeing the different policies that are required to be able to grapple with the migration coming into Costa Rica as a receiving country are certainly topics that are very thorny. But in any case, I do want to focus on what Diego has asked specifically, and that is lessons learned. Now, there is one very interesting lesson learned in terms of the pandemic. Now, of course, Costa Rica historically has turned to labor for the season, different seasonal areas, whether that is for the harvest of coffee, sugar cane, banana, citrus, pineapple, and so forth. And these migrants primarily have been from Panama and Nicaragua. But in the context of the pandemic, that traditional sort of migration that we've seen for a decade has really changed. And this has been due to two different factors. Uh, first, our business community has asked for new procedures to ensure that, particularly from these two countries, we can ensure safe, secure, well-organized migration to ensure, in turn, that there is sufficient manual labor for these harvests. It's also been important, and the second aspect here is the matter of economic interdependence. And again, it was our business community that has been calling for very clear procedures to allow these populations to enter. Another factor, of course, has been in the framework of the pandemic that a lot of institutions felt that they needed to take on this task. Institutions that in the past, for example, did not necessarily really engage on this topic. One example is the Ministry of Health. Another has been the Ministry of Agriculture, which again, had not really taken on board, made the topic of the regularization of temporary migrant workers as an issue of their own, or the topic of well-organized, safe, secure migration, again, had not been a core topic for that particular ministry. And so the pandemic has really brought these topics to the forefront and led them to engage and adopt these topics as more pressing and as topics of interest to them. So in order to be able to provide more secure, regular entry into Costa Rica, again, for our temporary and seasonal workers, we established a series of procedures and protocols, routes and mechanisms that didn't exist previously. I, I know I don't have much time, so I'm not going to delve into too much detail on this, but what I do want to say is that we've created the, a migration traceability system for these workers. It is a technological platform that in real time has allowed a number of players to engage in 
interoperable management of this system and therefore the well-organized entry of these migrants into Costa Rica. Again, this allowed for interoperability both between the institutions and the private sector in managing and running these protocols. This has been very important because this technology, again, allowed us to work in real time. It wasn't a question of sending a memo from one office to another to see how many permits had been granted. No, it was operating again in real time. It's also a system that allows for traceability, traceability of each individual who comes into the country and to parts of the country, again, under the context of this system. We call it the CICLAM. Now, this really was a watershed event because before we had a population that was coming through this very porous border that we have, our land borders, and we had all of these situations in the public sector and the business sector that was trying to grapple with it. But now we have a new system which says, fine, we'll have a single protocol, one single procedure. It's all interoperable based on that set of procedures. So today, what we can see is that this procedure is not, it was not created just for the context of the pandemic, but it is something that will persist. It's shown us clearly how we can organize in a well-ordered, safe, secure, well-regulated process, particularly for these cases of circular migration. Because if we are looking, for example, at situations of the indigenous population for the harvest of coffee, we can actually map out the route and see where they go. We can see where they're harvesting in different parts of the country and then they, they depart. So we've clearly identified these routes, these migratory routes. The challenge for us now is to make those routes official. The route that people want to use for this labor-based migration, it's the route that the business community wants people to use as well for these seasonal workers. And that we want to ensure, of course, that these routes are offering the conditions of safety, security, and uh, appropriate migratory status. Now, I know I've spoken extensively on this, but I do want to share a few other ideas. And that is that, firstly, before a company can get a permit to bring in a seasonal worker, the public institutions have to verify the conditions in which this individual will be lodged, well, where they will live and where they will work. And that means that instead of having these migrants come in, in to into conditions that, and I as a minister admit this really quite freely, that they were very unhealthy even in human conditions, the protocol now indicates that if an employer wants to bring someone into the country, the working conditions, living conditions have to be verified. 
the cost of recruiting, the fees, the taxes, and transportation, of course, will be absorbed by the business community. Again, seeking to ensure the traceability of these individuals. So if these people want to go from one farm to another while they're in Costa Rica, they can certainly do that, but the companies are required then to report these changes. Again, this allows us to ensure traceability and to track all of the seasonal workers who've arrived in the country and identify who is responsible for then returning them to the border so that they can return to their home country and to do so safely and securely. I don't, again, want to speak much more about this. I just wanted to make this announcement because it's relatively recent. And on that note, let me just say that last week, the International Organization for Migration organized a workshop here in Costa Rica. It was on site. We had a delegation from Mexico, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, as well as the Dominican Republic, because they came to learn exactly about what I've just described, these circular routes, these pathways to ensure that people's rights, human rights are protected, as well as providing assurances to the business community. Again, ensuring that this process will be well regulated, secure, and well organized. So we had an opportunity to present this procedure to these countries. And we've also seen what has been happening in these other countries, Mexico, Guatemala, El Salvador, again, Dominican Republic. And we were able, therefore, to see what has been going on in this condition in terms of the circularity of our labor workers, again, of these seasonal workers helping to ensure that all of our countries have this incredibly valuable human resource that we have in the region, while at the same time taking advantage of the opportunities for employment. Let me conclude by noting that in August of this year, there was a meeting of ministers of labor of Central America, Panama, Dominican Republic, and we agreed to work on these different forms of temporary migrant labor in a circular fashion to ensure that such migration isn't a necessary evil in our region, but it's something that is key to supporting our individuals, our people, and our economies. Thank you very much, Minister. As Andrew says, there's certainly much to discuss, and I'm sure that we could continue to address many of these topics, and they are of the utmost interest, assuredly, to the region and to all the different countries that are working on this topic, especially of circular migration, and these best practices are always good to share. On that note, I would like to give the floor to Senia Chavez-Quiroz, 
who is the former Minister of Agriculture of Costa Rica and is the representative of the Costa Rican Coffee Institute. Of course, coffee being one of the most important economic components in the country and one of the largest employers of migrants. Senia, it is a pleasure to have you with us. The pandemic has brought about unprecedented collaborations between the government and the private sector, as the minister has just mentioned in terms of the management of labor migration. Why is it so important to involve the private sector in migrant integration processes? What can the private sector contribute? I mean, the minister has just mentioned some of that, but what exactly has been the experience of the Costa Rican Institute for Coffee. Thank you very much and thank you for the excellent report. And so I wanted to offer a warm greetings to the minister and to Priscilla who have been great allies and hello everybody who is with us here. And so talking about immigration has become something um, very interesting for us because there have been so many lessons learned and curiously, out of all of the terrible things in this pandemic, the good thing has been all we've learned about immigration. The first thing that I would like to point out is that finally the private sector and government authorities were able to see how important immigrant labor is for the agriculture sector in this country. And this has helped us tremendously because this led us to create processes through the pandemic because there was human talent that was seen both in the private sector and by the government that was able to help us address the issue of having some of the most important agricultural products in this country, not only for what they make up of GDP or as export products, um, but also because of the importance that coffee has culturally for our whole country, we had to put together an immediate response when the pandemic began. This was a very important time for coffee because we were already in the exportation phase of the cycle. And so we needed things, crops planted in late summer without knowing how this would turn out. Two things that were very important. First off, that there was a government that was aligned. And I think there was great work here done by the labor ministry, by the health ministry, by the social security organization in Costa Rica, um, and obviously by our immigration authorities. And so they were a united front who were, an author who were our spokespeople. That was the National Health Commission that was dealing with the country's approach to the pandemic. And on the other hand, specifically what we call um, governance within coffee had a, sp a specific capability of having organization among the private sector. So this was easy because uh, coffee as an industry is very organized. It's a sector that has a lot of information because of some laws that we have in the coffee sector and that helped the entire sector to move in lockstep. And so 
We were not demanding, but proposing some alternatives. The first of these that we truly celebrate was something that big co that the coffee sector and uh, the labor ministry um, had been working on for a long time had to do with the social security system. And so, and, it, and this is tied to formal employment. And so this is tied to, or, so we've put forth a proposal of changing our focus. And it was the coffee sector, along with the work ministry, that was able to loosen the rigid regulations that our social security system had among coffee collectors to understand that we needed to create a sort of special system and allow people to pay into the system thinking about the collective. And so there was a contract, we made an agreement, we all contributed resources toward it and something beautiful came about here. All migrants who come to work in coffee picking are immediately able to receive public benefits and contribute to this system. So we have a fund. It's a lot of money for us, which is a million dollars, maybe not so much for international organizations. So that all of these people who have participated in this, who don't have insurance of their own, because some people do, all of these people have the right to healthcare. And so that way, this money is able to go into the system and that has changed the game for us. And so there is not this fear in the farms because what is the producer's fear is having to make those payments into the social benefit system. Understanding that as if it were any other industry, the, uh, things happen in, in the agricultural sector uh, alike. And so this was a program that we were able to implement during the last harvest. And so the Coffee Institute uh, has put forth a report that we'll gladly share with you talking about how we were able to incorporate many other actors, um, professionals, academics, to be able to uh, formalize these processes. Another the important point was um, getting hard numbers on how many people are working in coffee harvesting. And so there were some migrants who came in seasonally. Last year, um, we had thousands of immigrants that were indigenous, but on the other hand, there were Nicaraguans, which were the greatest challenge because it's a closed uh, border. There wasn't binational status that would, um, and the, the challenge here was we needed some sort of a mechanism to have an orderly entry of people through two exit points, either Rivas or Panagua from Nicaragua And then having people come in through health protocols, and we did COVID tests at the border that the private sector paid for. And then from there, they went straight to the farms. And then we also worked with communities because if 
immigrant uh, labor has always helped with harvesting. It wasn't so clear because they would come and go. During the pandemic, people were organized, especially people who came from the outside. There were higher rates of infection in other countries. And so communities worked with this sector and um, big coffee companies joined together with civil society and different municipal governments to attempt to address or eliminate the fear in these communities of people coming in because they understood that they were coming in through formal pathways. Another very important aspect that was dealt with our immigration authorities, as well as the um, work ministry, which was regularizing these workers. And so what lesson did we take away from that? That it is possible to have a migrant become documented without a large number of hoops to jump through, which oftentimes becomes a barrier to people becoming uh, regularized. And so about 13,000 people were able to achieve a regular immigration status. Um, and all of the coffee was harvested, more importantly. And so what can we say here? It is necessary for us to be organized, not just in, in terms of the pandemic, but generally we need to look at the diversity that exists among migration to address security, health, and general well-being issues, which all touch on the idea of human rights. And so in terms of Maria Jesus's work, I think this idea of uh, allowing access to healthcare is very important in terms of human rights, but there's something else that I don't want to fall by the wayside uh, and is something that didn't just come about through the pandemic, but came about from a, a work, a job or project that Senia took on, which is how can we guarantee that immigrant children would have a safe place to be while their parents were working in the fields? because generally those children would be at home and we need to, which uh, we wanted to keep people or children away from high risk places. And so we created Casas de Alegría, which is also a joint public private venture uh, that creates uh, facilities on some farms that children, not only of farm workers, but local community children can also go to these places. We provided resources so that those children would be able to receive education and also good nutrition. Uh, being culturally sensitive, especially with indigenous groups, where there are big differences in our cultural context. So those have been great. There are marked differences in how much weight people gain, the children gain from the time they come into these centers um, by having, and, and these are among, this is among children of um, workers who are helping us harvest. And this, our, the time will fly if we start talking about this, but I wanted to highlight two important things. First is that the government be clear that they are the ones charged with setting norms and the uh, uh, 
private sector also has a role to play. This has to be something that requires buy-in from society and from the culture at large. And the third point is that this requires a social investment, both in terms of public policy and in terms of the private sector and other uh, stakeholders. Because it's not right that the countries that do the right thing are the ones who receive the least help in terms of what their needs are. And if I were to choose between basic nutrition for a child or giving them a book, obviously I would choose basic nutrition. But when I have nutrition taken care of and I can look at uh, uh, high other level needs, we should look at that. And so NGOs that look at immigration, we want them to make those efforts and have this country be a model so that the rest of the world can understand that there are things that can be done if there truly is the will, if things are orderly and if things are done through formalized pathways. And so I would like to say that this has been a very pleasant experience for the coffee sector in uh, Costa Rica. This, uh, we're seeing more productivity than in years past because people have their own documents so that immigrants can feel that pride and feel like they exist, they have valid, valid documentation so that they can uh, contribute to the social security system or get healthcare so that they can show that they are truly entitled to these things. And so that is the difference between what is we're seeing now and the past. And so we would like to see more NGOs like yourselves or different international organizations who have analyzed immigration not as a problem to resolve, but to make a better world. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Senia. And so this was really very interesting in looking at what the government was looking at and how the private sector would help to actually bring that into reality or put some of those policies into action in terms of uh, coordination and also working with other ministries. That's a truly important point for uh, ensuring that policies are successful, especially for what you're saying in terms of the role of international cooperation in these efforts. And so I would like to now give the floor to Priscila Suniga, who is Vice Minister for Governance and uh, Police which is the rubric governmentally under which the immigration authorities operate um, in Costa Rica. And so I would like to focus on three questions in particular, Vice Minister. First is what institutional and legal steps has Costa Rica taken to promote uh, migrant integration, specifically as we've within this third cycle as we've coined the term so what has costa rica been doing institutionally what intersectoral alliances could be beneficial for the country's migratory agenda and something that has been very interesting to me out of in terms of what's come out of this report 
is the fact that you all can very easily show everything that has been done, but clearly point to what still needs to be done. And so understanding, as this is viewed as government policy, what challenges exist and what is the vision for the future? Vice Minister, the mic is all yours. Thank you very much, Diego. It is a pleasure to be here and my cordial greetings to the Minister of Labor, Silvia Lara. It has been a pleasure to work with her on behalf of many migrants also let me recognize Silvia and Sinia Chavez. I as, uh, have been a born witness to the work that have been done in that context, especially with rural women. Let me also recognize Maria Jesus, who has presented this report with such important findings, which are, of course, are key to enabling that we uh, in government can provide greater opportunities to our peoples and also provide opportunities for us to improve our institutions. Andrew, of course, I know that he is with us in heart, if not in physical presence. And let me also, of course, recognize Manuel Orozco and the other panelists who are with us as well as our audience. And Diego, of course, let me turn to the questions that I've been asked and note in that regard that as Maria Jesus has noted, Costa Rica really has been visionary in taking actions and measures that are not just a matter of the policy of this administration, but of the entire government in the area of safe, secure migration. We have sought to be respectful, particularly of human rights, to recognize the legal status and especially of all the international agreements that Costa Rica has signed with regard to migrant populations. We've even made changes to our constitution, especially in Article 1, so that Costa Rica acknowledges the vast array of ethnicities that we have both domestically and in terms of the migrant population, which certainly enrich our culture and our society overall. We've taken a number of public policy approaches that, as I mentioned, are not just a matter of this administration, but are long lasting as a matter of state. That includes comprehensive migration policies, for a term for of 10 years from 2013 to 2023. And while these policies are, of course, fundamental in terms of not just our labor-based or seasonal workers, but also those requesting asylum, those that have 
petitions or applications for asylum status. This includes the topics of having a society free of racism, discrimination, public policies towards youth, early childhood, adolescence. It means equality, equality in terms of gender. Again, there are a number of challenges that we continue to confront, but we as a state, as a nation, are seeking to create policies that will enable us to allocate resources to these populations. The migration mig policy, immigration policy, is truly one of national integration. So again, our first plan was 2013 to 2017. In that context, we looked to strengthen the Migra Moy program specifically. This is a community that reaches out to communities to assist our undocumented immigrants in becoming documented, whether they may be in regular immigration status or whether they are going through some process for asylum and so forth. And we've done these uh, meetings and information sessions in a variety of different fora. We've also engaged in preventive policing, especially at the border area and in communities with a high presence of immigrant populations. We've worked furthermore at the grassroots level in the context of Law 3859. Again, this is looking at the different core programmatic areas for greater integration. The national plan, again, for integration is currently ranging from 2018 to 2023, and the General Directorate of Migration is engaged in efforts today to secure the necessary support to update this plan. It has been very effective so far, and we, as I believe it was the Minister of Labor and Maria Jesus both mentioned, we've created additional categories of protection for particularly our immigrants from Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. We hope to be able to serve some 20,000 people who, for a variety of reasons, have not been able to regularize their status. So what we're trying to do with this new status, this new category, is be able to provide faster-paced service to those groups. I would like to share with you some statistics so that we can get a better idea of the scope of the migration topic. 
through the 25th of November on the northern border. We've seen over 189,000 people enter and the southern border just under 35,000. Now, of course, we have tremendous variations in the different types of migrants. There are, as has been noted, individuals who are turning to Costa Rica as a destination country and others that are just in transit or here on a temporary basis. And we've seen that in the study that we've just uh, heard more about. Of course, we know that these socio-political crises, for example, in Nicaragua, uh, presented this upsurge in 2015. And then again, in 2018, there have been additional migration crises. And again, we know that there are many cases in which people are just transiting through Costa Rica en route to another country, in general, the United States. But nonetheless, Costa Rica is committed to serving these all of these populations. And this is part and parcel of the integration plan with particular accent placed on education, employment, and healthcare. Of course, I could continue to speak on all of the things that we've done. It is a real challenge just within five minutes to talk about everything that's been done and the challenges before us. But I think it is important to highlight the intersectoral work that we've been doing in the context of the migration agenda. As has been noted previously, Costa Rica definitely needs international cooperation to bolster our institutional capabilities. We do have certain strengths, but it is also true that we do need support to be able to receive these migrants as a result of these different crises. All of us seeking to do so within the framework of human rights, but we do have challenges. So therefore, these strategic alliances under the principle of shared and common responsibility is particularly important. There is, of course, a concern that we've seen from our neighboring country. We have seen over 100,000 requests for asylum in Costa Rica. Now, if you look at our total population, if we have, you know, in and the people that are engaged in the topic here in our different institutions, which is a very small group of people. And obviously, we're talking about people requesting refugee status. These are people who are afraid for their fear for their lives. And working with UNHCR, of course, we have been able to grapple with the situation a little bit better. But quite sincerely, if we did not have that UN support, our situation would be even thornier than it is today. Also, we need alliances with teaching institutions for early childhood, adolescents. We need to work with different 
groups or sports activities, development associations, all sorts of civil society institutions that will allow these migrants to truly become integrated into our community, that sh they should be able to really engage and be active, again, in the private sector, in the labor market, the private sector companies are key. We're, of course, seeking to generate a positive, more visible act, uh, impact for these migrants and for our refugees. In terms of challenges, in terms of the challenges that we are dealing with, of course, as a state, we need to ensure that we are respecting human rights. That is a core principle, it's fundamental. And of course, we understand that migrants are a highly vulnerable population per se. But if we add to that the number of women and children, we can see that the challenge is twofold or more. Therefore, we, of course, need to ensure that we're providing stable services, sustainable services. We face challenges, quite honestly, in that regard. We are working, of course, to ensure institutional commitments, once again, with a view toward ensuring that the policy is overarching and will last over time and is not just subject to the whims or preferences of a given administration. Therefore, we, of course, are in a position in which we need to make highly complex decisions that are affected by the ongoing crisis to be able to receive our migrants and provide appropriate care for them. We do need to ensure, as I noted, their human rights, providing access to the educational system, to the healthcare system, opportunities for employment, so that they do have the conditions of stability that people need and deserve. Integration, therefore, is again the overarching challenge. And of course, overcoming some of the myths and the biases that our own people have with regard to the immigrant population. Again, I would like to recognize what Senia and others have done, particularly in the agricultural sector. So on that note, I would conclude my remarks. Thank you. Thank you very much, Priscilla. And so I'd like to give the floor now to Cindy Regidor, who is a journalist at uh, Confidencial and also uh, director of the website Nicas Migrantes or Nicaraguan Migrates. And so she has a unique perspective in terms of the life of Nicaraguan migrants and the challenges that they face in their daily life as a, a journalist who covers 
uh, Nicaraguan migration to Costa Rica. What challenges do you see in terms of social cohesion among these uh, new migrants to the country? And what would be some positive steps to diminish those tensions that you have seen? And what are the clearest challenges right now that the Nicaraguan migrant population faces now in terms of what you see both as a Nicaraguan, but also as a journalist? Let us know. Hi, Diego. Thank you very much. And congratulations to you, to Maria Jesus, to Andrew, to all of MPI for your tremendous effort with this report that is very uh, comprehensive and we should look at um, in terms of institutions in Costa Rica, but also among the media. Those of us who are interested in the Nicaraguan migration um, should look at the report's findings. And so it's a great honor for me to be on this expert panel among um, decision makers who are uh, uh, affecting the lives of Nicaraguans and Nicaraguans are the largest population of migrants. And so I would sum up challenges to social cohesion with a single word. And I think it has to do with perception. I think that we might need to change how we are being perceived in Costa Rica, both in terms of the Costa Rican population, but also uh, among the migrant community. I think this notion of us versus them has still gotten the, the better of us, despite the fact that Costa Rica has traditionally been a host country for migrant communities and populations. I've perceived that since I arrived in this country six years ago, and I've noticed how the media in their um, dealings with the Nicaraguan migrant population, although there were a lot of us, they were very focused on specific issues. And so when things came up, like the crisis that came about in Nicaragua in 2018, which brought about a significant flow of migration to Costa Rica, we saw that at that time, a, a discourse emerged among, as far as a crisis that needed to be dealt with, but we also needed a perspective on a population that has been here for years. And also this has been going on for three years. This is no longer an emergency. This is now a part of Costa Rican society. I would say that that is the Costa Rican side of things, but in terms of our perception among the refugee or migrant community that's been living here for several years now, I think there is also a perception by which they still don't feel like they are a part of this country um, in terms of following certain protocols or rules and they should also have rights that they would be able to exercise like any other resident. I think that is the biggest challenge. Challenge, And media has a, res a responsibility in that regard in terms of how we are reporting and how we are portraying that community of migrants in Costa Rica. I think we need more reports and more coverage and deeper looks at the migrant community and 
the community should be able to express how they are living and what they need. And in that regard, we have tried to do that at Confidencial. I know about other uh, outlets in Costa Rica that have made a great effort to have more sustained coverage that not only talks about numbers, because the numbers are important and they reflect the size of the migrant community, but we also want to look at this qualitatively in terms of their contributions. And so it's been great to listen to Silvia, Priscilla, Priscilla, Senia, who have talked about the policies that have come about and that have been carried out and that have had a great impact. For example, uh, in terms of the binational agreement on workers, I've been able to report on these. Uh, I was interviewing these workers from Nicaragua on the border who were able to come in for the coffee harvest at this time of year, uh, especially during COVID-19. And it seemed like a very important way to show, first of all, how that community and those seasonal workers were essential for Costa Rica for a product as important as coffee is. And on the other hand, how the state in Costa Rica was putting forth these uh, great efforts in re recognition of this interdependence that other panelists have spoken about here. And I think that that may be what is needed for more social cohesion. And it might sound uh, cliche to talk about xenophobia, but the xenophobia still exists. It simply manifests in different ways sometimes very aggressively, like a protest that we saw in 2018 against Nicaraguans. We don't see that all the time, but that doesn't mean that all of Costa Rican society uh, has stopped being xenophobic or, or that it is xenophobic, but there may still be this idea that people have internalized that this is a matter of us versus them. And that may lead to people being treated with certain disdain or Costa Ricans treating them like they are doing them a favor or that they don't have the same uh, rights. And that can be seen throughout Costa Rica, including public officials, um, which has been brought to our attention by some of our sources. And then in terms of the most visible challenges, I've been able to, uh, to uh, talk to people who work with certain migrant and refugee uh, communities. And I would like to highlight some of the things that they shared. First, I would say um, is stability in work. Right now, Costa Rica has a, a challenge economically, a crisis even, and that it makes it difficult to absorb foreign labor the way that we saw in decades past. And in that regard, I would like to talk a little bit about the uh, precarious conditions that some migrant workers are in, in the agricultural sector or for home workers. There are cases that we become aware of through our sources. And I think that there it's a matter of how these people can be convinced that they can in fact report some of these um, things that are happening to them unjustly. How do we incorporate them into a legal framework or, or allow them to take steps to not have these 
sort of incidents happen again. And there are cases that I think are under the radar because there's fear in reporting these to authorities. For example, when I was reporting on the binational agreement, when we interviewed some of these workers that helped with the coffee harvest, we called them after the harvest and one or two, I don't want to say everybody, but one or two of these workers did say, you know, I don't know if I should have to pay for my transportation back to Nicaragua or for this COVID test when I said, well, you should talk to your boss, you should talk to the work ministry or the coffee ministry. There was a lot of fear. And so I think there needs to be more empowerment for the migrant community. On the other hand, I think what the report said is uh, on point in terms of having more flexibility in terms of recognizing foreign degrees or credentials. And sometimes the cost of these processes can be prohibitive. It could be $300, $400 to initiate the process of having a university or a degree or a title uh, recognized, even if, uh, at, at the high school or university level. And so something that's been commented on here and that I've also heard from people that work with these populations is that the international community's response needs to be sustained both in terms of the UN system and also different forms of cooperation that other international entities could put forth. That is extremely important. And something else that I heard was that this increased flow of people who are coming from Nicaragua because of an unresolved crisis is going to continue over the coming months. And as such, that creates the need for continued cooperation, especially on fundamental issues, access to healthcare, like um, insurance that's provided by UNHCR or uh, housing. There were a lot of issues among people who are living in extremely precarious situations and have no way of paying rent in this country. It's extremely expensive, especially for Nicaraguans who are here and are used to a different cost of living, which would be half of what it would be here. And then food would be another issue. Uh, those are some of my bullet points. And so I would like to thank you again for letting me be here in this space. I think this is very valuable and thank you for the effort put forth in creating the report. Thank you for your response, Cindy. And it's a pleasure as always to have you here. Lastly, I would like to give Manuel Orozco the floor. He is a director of Migration Remittances and Development Program, the Inter-American Dialogue and an expert on Nicaraguan migration. After hearing all of these extraordinary women who've spoken today, I wanted to ask you, in the face of Costa Rica's economic reactivation, what should policymakers consider about the benefits of migration? And how can the integration of migrants in Costa Rica benefit society overall? I know that some of our panelists have addressed these topics as has Maria Jesus, but in any case, Manuel, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much for this invitation. Greetings to everyone. 
before answering the questions, I think the report is very good. In general comments, it might be good to consider including a description of what Priscilla has mentioned, that is the National Integration Plan in Costa Rica. That is a complete comprehensive document that can really provide a roadmap. So in terms of accountability, it also provides a great baseline. It was drafted prior to the political crises in Venezuela and Nicaragua. So it's important to include it. The second thing I'd like to note is that I'm not convinced that there are three phases of immigration in Costa Rica. The first real wave was in 1970 was as a result of the earthquake in Managua in 1972 that led to some 20,000 Nicaraguan immigrants victims of that earthquake who stayed, at least 10,000 of whom stayed in Costa Rica. And then we saw again in the 1980s, the civil war against Samosa, which also led to another wave in migration. So again, I don't necessarily agree with the three waves that you've mentioned. Now, the third point I wanted to get to is that the answer really to the question as to the benefit of integration beyond euphemism, beyond arithmetic. I mean, you could look at metric matrices and indices for integration. I think each host society really has its own parameters of what a benefit is to that host country. Now, my personal and professional experience is that Costa Rica is truly an emblematic case. A wonderful example of how they have incorporated into their political culture this concept of being so strictly legalistic. I mean, you know, people of Costa Rica, the, the Ticas and Ticos understand that it, something has to be in the law. If it's not in the law, then it needs to be. And so this political culture and the culture of human rights are really, really important. Now, I am originally from Costa Rica, I, excuse me, from Nicaragua. I left when I was just a, a child. And Costa Rica really has been my home and it's been a very good place to, to be raised. And I look sort of from the inside looking out or from the outside looking in at the same time at what has been done with these policies. And I think Costa Rica really has worked very, very hard on the integration of foreigners, integration of its migrant population. I think the report falls short a little bit in recognizing that. Now, certainly there is a gap. There are some 
calculations go between 100,000 to 100,000 Nicaraguans that are in an undocumented situation in Costa Rica. My calculation is more like 80,000, but certainly we could perhaps get up to that number of 100,000 if we include the current wave as well as tourists who've overstayed their visas. And certainly for this administration, I understand that that's a headache and the administration that takes power next year also will have to grapple with this because in macroeconomic terms, Costa Rica is endeavoring to increase, obviously, its revenue stream and to modernize its economy, its green economy and digital economy, Why, while at the same time dealing with a tremendous fiscal deficit. So I certainly do not envy Priscilla and Sylvia the work that they're trying to do. I mean, how do you reduce the deficit in the midst of all of these political dramas while you're trying to bolster economic growth at the same time in the midst of this crisis that we are dealing with in economic terms, as well as this surge in migration? As Cindy has said, the intent to migrate of Nicaraguans has increased by 34% from 34% in April 2021 to 50% in October 2021. So that is say just in a few months of this year, if we had calculated earlier, 30 to 40,000 Nicaraguans entering Costa Rica by next year, that number could double. So in the midst of this effort to build back better, immigration and the response to this is going to be key. And so it's not just a question of long-term solutions, but also short-term solutions for integration, particularly in terms of the urban informal economy. Now, why do I say that? Because 90% of the migrant population in Costa Rica is rural, uh, is, excuse me, urban, and works in the informal sector. More, I would say, than in the agricultural sector. So we need to look to the market forces to see how they can be integrated. And there are three strategies that I'd like to suggest toward that end. First is to increase the formality in the labor market. Now, this is a very important intersection because the informal economy in Costa Rica has risen from around 35% to around 47% this year. A lot of that informality has to do with the immigrants who've arrived in Costa Rica over the last four years. So how do you reduce informality? Well, one strategy is modernization, updating, improving the competitive capabilities of small and mid-sized companies in the area of San Jose, in Heredia, where there are a lot of domestic workers, a lot of fruit workers, a lot of guards and uh, 
other micro enterprises that are not really modernized. And so we certainly can look at opportunities for employment, maybe 1,000, 2,000 jobs. Now, obviously, that doesn't sound like much, but in the short term, it does generate tremendous benefits, not only to the migrants, but also to the overall economy. Greater formality also will allow people to join the financial system. That also allows to greater liquidity in the local economy where these micro companies can therefore qualify also for loans. Now, working hand in hand with the transnational financial sector, working with BAC, Promedica, and other groups that have operations in Colombia, Nicaragua, and in Costa Rica. Again, these banks working in public-private alliances and partnerships can play a role in these migrant sectors where there's a greater level of informality, but where, and while there's certainly a greater credit risk there, we're not talking about failed endeavors. We're talking about successful microenterprises that are just not necessarily in the formal sector. Now, Cindy mentioned this in the context of agricultural workers, and certainly there is a need for international coordination and cooperation to help reduce the vulnerability of certain populations and refugee camps and other sectors. Again, in the urban areas, it is therefore of the utmost importance that the state invest in terms of, for example, building new schools for refugee children, providing healthcare assistance, as others have mentioned. Another topic is one that, again, this is something that we talked about previously with the US ambassador here, which is looking at the border areas with Nicaragua in our duty-free zones to increase the employment rate by recognizing the refugee status. This would also allow for greater activities and financial activities, even in the refugee camps, as well through cooperatives. Now, one very important economic sector that is a bit underdeveloped in terms of commercial competitiveness is the what we might call the nostalgic trade. The market of remittances really doesn't operate with much competition and there are very high costs. So moving out of the ethnic niche and into the transnational niche for the import, for example, of higher quality Nicaraguan products. The topic of remittances, basically there are 
for companies that are handling over 300,000 household to household transactions. And so it's very important to bolster the competitiveness through digital financial transaction mechanisms and platforms. The knowledge economy in the migration areas is also important. Again, going back to the topic of education, teachers, tutors, and so forth. It's not just a question of generating employment, but also overcoming the more limited performance, especially of Nicaraguan students, migrants in Costa Rican public schools. So I think that these three strategies would enable us all to complement what Costa Rica is doing in terms of the macroeconomic policy, the green economy, digital economy, grappling with a strong fiscal deficit and overcome this crisis. Thank you. Thank you very much for your comments or for the three points that you make, which really add a lot to the conversation. And so we're reaching the final phase of our session, which is one which we will take questions from the her audience. And I see that there is a question. If I am correct, Xenia already answered, which is talking about these um, Casas de Alegría, or these um, centers for children, and how we can change the narrative in terms of us versus them. This is something that Cindy was talking about. There were some people that asked about that. And if you could expand on that, perhaps. And finally, I had a question that I got by email, which has to do with the role that a country like Costa Rica could play. Uh, coming back to what we were saying previously, in terms of um, going back to Manuel's term of, um, this is something that's been going on in the internal debate for a long time. I, for example, am from Colombia, and this is a country that's been dealing with these issues for five years. Uh, Costa Rica has been dealing with these issues uh, for a century, or almost half of a century dealing with immigration. And so we're asking, what role can a country like Costa Rica play at a regional level? And that's one of the questions that um, has come here, understanding that each country has its own dynamic, but looking a little bit at what that role could be. And so let's start with those three questions. And then if anybody would like to add anything, they are welcome to do so. And I wanted to once again, thank everybody. And so Xenia, over to you. Thank you very much, Diego. So these Casas de Alegría, or, or these uh, child care center preschools are a true source of support for um, parents that work in the coffee sector, uh, initially in the South, but now throughout the coffee growing regions. And there are 20 of these facilities of uh, among people who are present during the coffee harvest. 
And this is absolutely a collective effort um, because that allows us to bring people together who want to help with this issue. In this regard, the Ministry of um, Social Assistance has a key role to play, but also there is a, a foundation that has taken um, leadership along with the Coffee Institute, the Work Ministry, the Health Ministry, and normally we are able to put forth an agenda during the harvest, for example, through the University of Costa Rica during Ch Children's Health Week, we have a, a whole week of events for this topic. Um, the Starbucks Foundation is also a great supporter. And so we have been able to have more of these uh, Casas de Alegría. And so you can write me at X Chavez. Uh, and the interpreter did not catch the domain name for the email, uh, but we have an entire team that is working on this issue. But we would love to talk to you about what we can do and how you could take part in some of these projects. And likewise, you can find some programs that we have done on YouTube where you can see how we work and um, what some of our uh, work has been in the social sector. And there's been uh, NGOs that have helped us a lot in terms of health and uh, different structures to make this uh, program successful. I have the same issue with my um, spelling my last name. I'm Chavez with an S. And so, Cindy, could you comment on what people were saying in terms of, of somebody was asking a little bit about the impact of discrimination, racism that there could be toward immigrants in some cases. But I think that everything is a part of this issue and how or identifying what is going on, which I think that you did a good job of doing, but what possible solutions could come up, could you think of in terms of these questions? Well, I think that there is a great example that we can look at in Costa Rican society, and that is um, the importance they give to having a culture of peace and education about human rights. And so I think they could do a better job of having more of these concepts internalized. Oftentimes we talk about xenophobia in a way that is perhaps very structured, very conceptual, very by the book. And then what we end up learning is that we shouldn't say things like, don't act like a Nicaraguan. We shouldn't say paisa, uh, which is fine uh, to, to tell people not to do that. But in our schooling, in our education, we don't internalize what it's like to be empathetic, to take people in. Uh, and how that goes much beyond what we are taught superficially. And there are other concepts um, that have to do with racism, classism, gender. I think that would be fundamental to have more practical teaching on empathy um, so that we could all internalize how we can truly eliminate uh, these sorts of 
behaviors or thoughts that are perhaps inadvertently or unconsciously xenophobic. This makes me think of a point that was made in the report and how we can incorporate Nicaraguan culture and history uh, that brought about these migratory flows and incorporate that into teaching of Costa Rican history, how it is that these came to be um, and what these immigrants have uh, contributed. What wonderful it would be to include this in the curriculum because what we see in the end is that this is a time when uh, Costa Rican society has been enriched in many respects. And I would ask in a country with such a large immigrant population, why do we not have a permanent presence in media? Obviously, the scale is different, but why is there a channel like Univision or Telemundo in the US, but in Costa Rica, we don't have those big spaces where we would always be able to discuss the migrant community, Nicaraguans who are a part of Costa Rica and likewise Colombians, Venezuelans, Cubans, et cetera, who are a part of Costa Rica. I think that would be a big change and a big step forward because it's um, very noteworthy to me that the first time I published something about Nicaraguans in Costa Rica was in Teletica, which is one of the biggest TV channels. And one of the comments on Facebook was, oh, I didn't know that this was now called Telenica, so like Nicaraguan TV. And so basically asking why are Nicaraguans using this space in media? And so I think that would be one way to communicate to Costa Rican society that we are all a part of that society. Very well, thank you very much, thank you. Cindy and everyone else, I apologize if there are any questions that we didn't get to, but we nonetheless do have time constraints. Let me remind you that this report that's been presented today, the State of Costa Rica's Migration Integration Policy, is available on MPI's website site and the link on your screen. Hopefully, if, uh, if you could put that in the chat. But in any case, we look forward to continuing this dialogue. This is certainly a local-based conversation initially, but it also has regional implications. And of course, the audio of the event will be available on the website tomorrow or the day after. And that will be available again so that you can listen to the remarks made. Thank you all very much. I wish you a great afternoon. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, and a wonderful new year. Thank you all. <laughs>